Welcome to the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast from Nashville, Tennessee. I am your host, John Martin Keith. Celebrities, working class musicians, and people who work behind the scenes in all areas of the music industry will share their stories, encourage you, and give practical advice of ways you can make a living doing what you love in the music industry. This episode is brought to you by Edenbrook Productions. Edenbrook Productions is the company I founded to help musicians grow in their craft. Are you a songwriter, but maybe you've been told your songs aren't quite there yet? Or are your songs ready, but you don't feel stage ready? Or maybe music is your passion, but you feel imprisoned by your day job and you don't know what to do next to make your dream a reality. Well, Edenbrook Productions is here to help. We offer consulting services via phone call, Skype, and FaceTime. And for the You Can Make a Living in the Music Industry podcast listeners, we're offering an introductory one-hour consultation special. Click on the link in the show notes to contact me, and let's get you making a living in the music industry. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited for you to meet my friend, Ben Phillips. Ben is a great session drummer here in town. He has played on everything from movie soundtracks to country albums and everything in between, pretty much. He's also a great producer and a great engineer and a great music editor. He has worked on lots of country albums doing music editing as well. So there's a lot we're talking about today. This is a longer interview than I typically do. Uh, There was just so much to talk about. So I want to get it all squeezed in. So let's do it. Sit back, relax, grab a pen and pad and get ready to take some great notes. All right, I'm hanging out here with my good friend, Ben Phillips. How are you today, buddy? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to see you. You too. Thank you for letting me come hang out with you here on Music Row in Nashville, Tennessee. We're at Seagal Music Publishing. Yep. Upstairs. They got uh, like a mix room up here that you are, I guess you're renting out, right? Yep. Yeah. So uh, Seagal, you said, is owned by Brad Paisley and and Chris Chris Dubois. Dubois, Correct. So two huge country songwriters, obviously. Yep. Yep. So this is really neat that we get to hang out up here. And, and you said you've known these guys for years and years. And Yeah, I've known Dubois a long time. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, it's it's been several years, yep. What a fun life we live. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's such a, an interesting life that we get to live doing music and being around all these people and entertainment, quote unquote, entertainment industry. Yeah. And uh, it's just fun. It is. You know, and this, this is the kind of thing that people that are listening to the show are wanting to get into someday. Right. Or, or or currently are working towards those types of things, you know. And so I hope that our conversation today is encouraging for people that are listening to help encourage them to know that you can do this. That's right. the whole point of this podcast. You can make a living in the music industry. It's just figuring out the ways to, to navigate the waters, you know, to kind of get your foot in the door to some of these places, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes it's a long stretch of road and sometimes it's a short stretch of road. Yeah. It varies. Yeah. More, th- more often than not, it's longer than shorter. <laughs> more often than not, and a lot harder and a lot longer than... It's one of those things that you have to kind of look back over your career, and uh, it's it all makes sense in hindsight, but when you're in the process of doing it, it, it seems like a labor that will never get there. Yep. And then you look back and you're like, oh, oh. I've... I've been there and I keep going. Okay. I've been I've been doing it. I've yeah. been doing it. It's hard to see that when you're in the middle of it sometimes. It is really hard. Yeah. I I completely agree. Yep. So you and I have known each other for about six years or so. Yep. Um we go to go to church together. At yep. Fellowship Bible Church. And every time I do an interview, most of the time <laughs> most of the guests on here, I, I know through that 
yeah. connection. Um, Absolutely. Just because we've served together yeah. on worship teams and different things like that. And, and it just it just so happens that all of us are actively working in the music business, right. you know, professionally as well. So it's just kind of been a nice connection point for a lot of us in that way. So you're a drummer and you're a phenomenal drummer. Thank you. And I have thoroughly enjoyed playing alongside you, you know, on stage and leading worship and do those types of things. And so uh, I wanted to get together with you and talk, because I know you do more than just drumming. You're, yeah. you're a great drummer, but you also, you do mixing and whatever else in the world it is that you do in this business. So I wanted to get with you and kind of talk about the different things that you've done throughout your career and how you've been able to do that and share your, you know, your advice on for people wanting to get into this as well. So give us a quick background history on who Ben Phillips is and how you, where you're from and how you got into music to begin with. Yeah, I'll try to make it short and sweet okay. to get to to get to the meat of it. But sure. um, I was born and raised in a, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, in okay. Roswell, Georgia, and uh, I started playing drums at the age of nine, pretty early. And when we got to school, I just always wanted to play drums. And then shortly after that, I remember being at church, sitting up in the balcony, and I saw the soundboard with all the lights and buttons, and I said, "I don't know what that is, but I want to do that." Right. I still remember that to yeah. this day, and I could not have been more than eight or nine. Yeah. And, um, and that's, that's really kind of how I started doing. I, I started playing, um, in school. I started playing drums at church. I started doing sound at church. I started doing sound at school anywhere in whatever way possible I could play music and be around music and the recording or the electronic studio side of things. Mm-hmm. I was all about it, whatever I could do. Um, I was in bands. I played in rock bands, southern gospel bands, country bands, whatever, whoever wanted me to play, wherever they wanted me to play, however they wanted me to play. Mm-hmm. I was all about it. Now, did you take lessons? Uh, I didn't at first. At first, it was just through school, you okay. know, band at yeah. school or whatever. And um, I learned a lot of bad technique, <laughs> as, as you can imagine, in fourth and fifth grade. And then by the time I got into uh, high school, I started taking lessons, and I had to basically relearn everything I'd ever learned and kind of start over from scratch. And that's where I really kind of started getting into really the love and the technical side of, of drumming. And, and, uh, it really pushed me creatively and musically. And that, that's really when I started practicing like two to three hours a day, every day, all the time, missing out on lots of things, <laughs> you know, giving up, hanging out with friends or going doing this. Cause I was practicing, um, sometime to a fault. maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's what I love doing. And I just sure. wanted to do that more than anything. And then, uh, I found, I was living in Atlanta and I heard about Belmont through, uh, our choir director at church out of all places. And, uh, he recommended Belmont. And as soon as I heard the name, I was like, that's where I want to go. And they have a music business program there where I was able to study uh, studio engineering. And and when I came to school, I wasn't going to be a drummer. Like I was like, I didn't even bring my drums the first couple of months of school because mm-hmm. I just wanted to be an engineer. And then I got there and I was like, man, I really miss this. I want to play. And then about two years into my uh, school career, I kind of changed uh, focus again. And that that's when I decided I just wanted to be a session drummer. Okay. That's all ever. And the engineering kind of took a back seat, even though I was still on staff. They have, you know, students that could be on staff uh, in the studio there. And I was doing that. So I was living in in the studio all the time, but my focus was still on drumming. So I was in 
bands and playing with whoever else. Because being at Belmont and in Nashville, everybody is a musician and everybody is an artist. So just able to be around that sort of community and being able to play with all sorts of different types of musicians all the time was was really helpful to be able to, you know, take any gig that comes along because that experience, you know, you you learn to play in all different types of situations with great sound, with lousy sound, with no setup, with lots of setup, you know, hauling gear here, hauling gear there, you know, usually for no money, you know, because, I mean, making money at it when you're 18, 19, 20 years old is like, what? You know, right. who's going to pay me to do this? And then, um, then I know right out, right out of college, um, I had a, had my first road gig, you know, making at the time, I think it was 75 bucks a gig. And I was like, woohoo, yeah. this is 75 bucks a gig. This yeah. is awesome. You know, I'm like 22. I thought it was awesome. You know, driving around the country in a van playing gigs for basically no money. But, um, yeah, but how, let's talk about that for a second. How did yeah. you land that gig? That, how did I land that gig? Um, you know, it was literally just all the people that I had known through Belmont. If I'm, I auditioned for that gig. Okay. There was a live audition. Man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was 22 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was a it was a live audition. And I forgot how I even found out about the audition. I remember I auditioned, yeah. And I got the gig through an audition. Okay. Then we hit the road. And some buddies of mine from college were also made the audition. Were in the band. So okay. we all kind of got now, in the band Was this together. a signed artist or an indie artist? or? It was a signed artist. She was a... A Christian artist, a first record, you know, sort of thing, mm-hmm. and um, wind up going nowhere. You know, she didn't wind up making it, and her okay. deal fell apart. And okay, you know, which happens, which happens, that, that happens way more than not happening. <laughs> the way just for it does, to know. <laughs> it happens a, a lot more. And you know, and she was a great person, a great talent. It just, uh, you know, as, as you know as well as I do, it's like the difference between a successful artist and a not a, not a successful artist is not typically talent. It's all these other things mm-hmm. that have to line up. Yep. Um, you know, in, in in the end, she I just don't think she was in a place to put up with and be in a, you know, as an artist, you have to be able to be political and shake hands and go around to radio stations, do all those things. And that just was not in her personality. Yeah. So it wasn't about musical talent. It was really more about having that team and that personality to be able to sell that music mm-hmm. to the next level and it kind of worked out for her in the end i think she was happier um but it was a stepping stone for me sure. in my career again that experience of oh i'm driving all the country and driving all through the night to go play a gig the next day mm-hmm. you know um you know got to play in front of huge festivals in front of huge crowds for the first time all that sort of stuff um it was a great experience yeah. um and then that led me to another gig out of college, uh, a year or two later, um, with a, a newly signed country artist, um, kind of similar thing. They were a little bit bigger in the fact, you know, now we had a tour bus and fly date, so we weren't having to drive in a van so, and it was $150 a gig, you know, right. so a little bit more money. And, uh, and, and that was good. And I got that just because a buddy of mine from college was interning for Dan Huff, who produced it, and said, put a band together. And he said, hey, you want to be in the band? And that's kind of how I got the gig. Okay. You know. <laughs> so it, it's a relationship yes. situation yeah. for you. Absolutely. Which I talk about all the time. Yeah. People are sick of hearing me say this, but this is what, it is. It's what this b- business is built on, is relationships. Yeah. yeah. And uh, because you knew somebody in college. Yeah. Worked for him. 
put a band together, boom, there you go. And yeah. now you're out on the road playing for a signed artist playing these on the tour bus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, but it, you know, and again, I was it had taken me you know, being in town 4 or 5 years up to that point. You know, a lot of that time was in college, but still building those relationships for that mm-hmm. long before that even happened. And they say it's, you know, the 5-year rule. Yeah. You know, it takes about five years before anything really ever takes off for someone in this town to kind of get get their feet wet and yeah. get things happening. Yeah. You know, so that's that's about normal. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, that was not the 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 beginning of the growth. That was it was um, when that ended, that was the end of a chapter and things got dark for a while. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Just, you mean as far as work goes? Oh, yeah. A, a, <laughs> lot, of, a lot of things, life, work, oh, everything life, got, everything got, dark, got huh? really dark. So um, that was a fun tour, and that probably lasted six, eight months. Okay. And then then they hired another band, or I don't even really know. It's like, uh, again, another artist. They Their single off that record went top five, which was great, and then you never heard from them again. Right. It's another example of why didn't they work? I don't know. Who knows? Um, But then after that, I was in a, I was in a rock band. Um, Because of the guy I was in a band with, with that first artist. Well, actually both the bass player in both those bands, who's also another college buddy, um, who I'm still friends with, James Gregory. So we go back a long ways. He had met up with this other guy doing a band thing, this artist, and they were wanting to put a band together. And he was producing a lot of, um, this was kind of all going on at the same time with that country artist. And then also finding this other gig and this other work through this other means. And this this artist, uh, his name was Quinlan, uh, was putting, and he was at the time working for Ted T, a big Christian producer. Mm-hmm. And he was starting to produce his stuff, but also other CCM artists. And so it allowed me to get into working with him as a band, but also too, because of that experience and because of this relationship I had with this bass player and meeting this other writer, artist, producer, and getting in a band with all of them, that allowed, not only that allowed that relationship to grow, but what came out of that relationship was not only did I join a band, but we recorded probably for two or three years before we ever did a live show together. We were the backwards band. We were all about the studio. We recorded 20 or 30 songs before we ever played live. Okay. Because he was such a studio guy mm-hmm. and producing and writing all the time, we had access to a studio almost all the time. Right. And he was always writing. So we would always, so I had, because of that, I was always in the studio and he was always producing. So I wound up getting all this experience playing in the studio. Right. Not yeah. only from college, living in the studio and playing in the studio, but then working with him on a much deeper level of having a producer who was really kicking my butt in the studio, no, play it again. I mean, we would, I mean, this was back when, you know, before Pro Tools was really a thing. And so it was all tape, usually Mm -hmm. D88s. Right. And having to sit there and record. And it was like, do it again, do it again, do it again. It wasn't like, great, we'll edit it and up and no. And so we would, I think I spent three, four, five hours on a drum track one time, just kicking my butt over it again, play it again, play it again, play it again. Um, That sort of experience helped so much just to kind of know what I needed to do. So uh, let's talk about that a little deeper, Mm -hmm. just for a minute. 
so because the ability to sit and do that for hours on end, yeah, you know, play it again, play it again, play it again. Is it because you weren't playing it right? Was he not hear? Was he hearing it something different in his head, or is it just let's get different variations of different things? Like, what makes someone tell you as a as a musician keep playing it for three or five hours? Like, what are the what are the details they're trying to pull out of you for that? Uh, in that case, a lot of it was you know me being a young drummer. A lot of it was performance. Okay, wasn't wasn't executing the part correctly okay. that was part of it and the other thing was just experimenting on parts okay okay that part didn't work now try it a different way yeah you know um you know try it you know at, at the time I, I didn't have in my pocket knowing now i've i've played enough in the studio i know what drum fill is going to work in what situation i right. know which part is going to work in what situation and how it's going to work that comes with experience of doing it a lot sure but at the time i didn't have that experience it's like I didn't realize, oh, this kick drum and this particular beat and this thing gets in the way of that. Right. He could hear that. I couldn't hear that at the time. So it's a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And then having bad habits of maybe playing too much or playing, you know, when you're used to playing live and you're not hearing it back all the time, you don't realize this extra kick or that extra snare hit, oh, that really impacted how that affected the vocal or it set this up or it interfered with this or got in the way of this. And it didn't create this energy or lift that you wanted it to. You know, he had a lot more experience and he was a producer in hearing certain things that I wasn't hearing. Mm -hmm. So it was a combination of all that. It was a lot of a performance, but not necessarily that I was playing badly. Some Mm -hmm. of it was I was playing badly, but a lot of it was just not knowing those little details and how those little things can affect the bigger picture. Sure. That makes complete sense. So while we're talking about that for a second, what would you tell drummers that are listening right now that are maybe relatively new to playing in a studio or they're wanting to get into studio work doing session stuff what is some advice that you would tell somebody that's a drummer okay when you go in the studio and this this is a new thing for you here are the things to do here are some things not to do when you're in a session yeah what what would you tell somebody like that work on listening to everybody else really listening to the vocal and what everyone else is playing. And and going back, you know, I don't really do this anymore after I play, but early on, going back and listening to what you just played and really diving into what I just played and listening to how all those things affect the other parts. Okay. And also, too, I I think it's helpful, too, especially early on, uh, to understand production and understand there's probably going to be more stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. And that's the producer's job to have that vision and understand that and to trust that producer to to do that vision. You're there to serve the producer and the artist, not yourself, and to get out of the way of that and go, well, I think this part's going to be cool. Well, you don't under, you know, I may not understand that they have X, Y, and Z planned ahead, and mm-hmm. that's going to cover up that space that I'm wanting to put in there. Right. So it's like, that's great. I want to do that. But that's not ultimately what the vision needs to be. Yeah. So maybe I need to just play something really simple and yeah. get out of the way of it. Yeah, because it's probably programming loops or some keyboard synthesizer program thing that's going to fill in that space that yeah. is and just s- going to get in the way. Kind of yeah, thing. it could be, it could be anything. Yeah. You know, it could be strings, choir. Sure. It could yeah. be, you know, it's all that stuff. It's like that that I may not be hearing because what a lot of times when – not all the time, but a lot of times when I'm playing, I'm one of the first things to go on there. And 
I don't know what else is going to ha- be happening. Mm-hmm. And the, the producer does. So I need to learn how to get out of the way of that. Yeah. Because nowadays everything is tracked separately so much. A lot of things are. You know. Except, like in, the co- except in the country world, which we'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're, yeah, unless you're all in a room together. Yeah. You know, which the majority of stuff that we do nowadays is tracked separately. It is. So Most much, a lot of it is, yeah. You know, and so that's why you're saying you don't necessarily know what's coming because you don't hear those parts yet. Right. Where if it were all in one room, you know, you're playing off of each other and yeah. kind of have a map of where to go. Yeah, a, a huge map. But even still, even if you are playing all together, I mean, you could be pa- playing in the same room with drums, bass, el- electric, keys, acoustic, bass of five guys yeah. at least. And so you have a really good idea of where it's going to go, but there's still going to be things that are added. Sure. Like that's just considered basic tracking. That's not... Right. That's most of the time not the finished product. It's maybe... 50, 60, 70% of the finished product. Mm-hmm. So you have a really good vision, but it's still not done. Yeah. You know that. It's like, it's never done until it's done. Right. <laughs> and that can take forever if yeah. if you're if it, you're nitpicky. Yeah, it can. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So then you got to a point that you had your own studio for a long time. and that yeah, you, Years later, yes. And, and you were tracking drums, doing session work for all kinds of people. So who are some of the people that you've that we would know that you've worked with. I'd have to pull up this my is your laundry music list. To, of, yeah. To, uh, give, give, give me a lot of them. I would give me three I to forget. three to five people. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> no pressure. Uh, just playing drums on not engineering. Yeah. So there's different credits. So there's engineering credits and playing drums and editing credits and different things I've done on different records. Um, but just drumming wise, Matthew West, uh, Russia fool, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Played on a thing for Michael W. Smith one time. It's been a while. That's why <laughs> I played on a Blake Shelton Christmas thing. Okay. Um, Chase Rice. Uh, oh, the Chris Jansen. The plaques are over here. Okay. I played and mixed that. Um, so you've done a yeah. lot. Suffice yeah. it to say. Yeah. Um, and then and then you get into just engineering. That's a whole other thing. You know. Okay. Well, let's shift. Let's shift into the engineering aspect of things. So yeah. you you started engineering. While you're doing your own thing, as you're set, doing your session drumming, yeah. So, like, what makes the transition into from drumming into engineering to begin with? Now, you we go back to you said like eight or nine years old. You saw a board with a bunch of lights on it yeah. at a church, and you're like, I want to know what that is and do yeah. that. So that leads you to where you are now. Yeah, to so, do some of that kind of stuff. And en- engineering was always interweaved with playing. So I. Even in school, like like college, I was saying I was even though I was, my focus became on s- drumming, session drumming in particular, um, I was always engineering and mixing stuff at the same. T- um, sometimes stuff I'd play on, sometimes it wasn't stuff I played on, and then and even when I was in a band, sometimes I would I didn't really engineer or mix that stuff. Um, I was really more the drummer in that. But there was some records and things out of college. Some buddy of mine would produce some indie records, and I would engineer or mix that stuff so that so it was kind of always mixed yeah. in there you, you had the experience from belmont though yeah i had the experience from belmont and you know I, I i never as far as the engineering side like a lot of guys will come up with assisting with someone else or they'll work at a studio i never did any of that i just kind of kind of jumped in and did it right and made a lot of mistakes along the way but that's just kind of how i learned to do it and just and also being a session drummer i got to work around a lot of great tracking engineers and I would look in what they do and I'd ask them questions like, why are you doing that? What are you doing this for? Mm-hmm. I learned a lot by just doing that. Sure. That was, 
That's the being, best experience. That's man. the best experience. And being on both sides of the glass of the drumming and then the engineering, it's like I've, I've stolen so much from other people just asking them questions. But, you know, to get to explain that transition a little bit, kind of how I got into that studio a little bit more was so that band I was in basically broke up where I left the band. There was, it was a ship, it was a Titanic sinking pretty fast and I jumped off and took a lifeboat and got out of there. And at that point in my life was probably my mid twenties. It was a dark, like nothing was working. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I was having a hard time getting any paying gigs. I had a lot of local artists I was playing for. I, w I had a day job and I was still coming home and rehearsing every night and then going out and playing in the studio or gig till two o'clock in the morning, then get up at six or seven and go to work again. So it was like burning candles at both ends, working a lot, trying to get something going and nothing was working. Mm -hmm. It was really, really frustrating. Um, and and that's that's when I decided to I decided to quit for a couple of years. I just said, I, I can't do this anymore. And I quit. And uh, my parents had moved to Chattanooga at the time. And um, I w went to live down there and work for my dad doing real estate and development and construction and all that for a couple of years. And I won't get into how of a horrible of a decision that was. But suffice it to say, um, life really fell apart mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, that's another story for another podcast. Sure. And then um, after about two years, I decided to move back. And in that time, I hadn't really played much. I pretty much quit playing. I would play at a church there some, and I would still come back to Nashville and play every once in a while. So I wasn't completely out, but I was pretty much out. Mm -hmm. I, I say I almost didn't play for two years. Yeah. It took a while to kind of get my chops back and to kind of get practicing. So I moved back, and that's when I decided I'm going to put a studio in my house. Okay. That was the moment that I said I want – all I ever wanted to do was be in the studio and play drums and make music. That's all I ever wanted to do. I said, I'm going to do that. Um, so I, I started the studio and, you know, and then I just started hanging out with reconnecting with, with those relationships we talked about mm -hmm. friends from Belmont and meeting new people and meeting new people and meeting new people. And I started the studio back in my house and it took me a few months to kind of get the gear and get it all set up. And, you know, I didn't really do any build out. Really, I mean, the drums were in the living room. It was an old 30s house, and luckily the house sounded amazing. You know, I got really lucky. It had plaster walls and hardwood floors and, you know, nine-foot ceilings, and it just sounded fantastic. It was yeah. a great-sounding room. You know, and I just put the control room in a bedroom, and it sounded horrible. You know, it was just the bedroom, you know. So this, this is nothing fancy. I didn't. I literally did zero build-out. Sure. Because that's one of those things that's not fun to put money into. Right. What's fun to put money in is gear. And I right. bought a lot of gear. That was fun. Not not isolation. Not isolation. There was no isolation. <laughs> there was like none, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was just literally just a house with the drums in the living room, an old house with lots of hardwood floors and plaster. So I started that and and it was it was slow going for a few months. And I was just trying to do anything. I was just trying to reconnect and and trying to play and pick up any gig I could just trying to trying to get get back in things and for the first few months it was hard I remember putting my mortgage on on a credit card a couple months you know because like I had what else am I gonna do you mm -hmm. know so it was it was tight for a while and then I I got a I was sitting there one day and I got a call from a buddy of mine from college I'm still buddies with Matt Stanfield he's like hey I'm down here at Soundstage which is a studio right down from where we are on, on Music Row he's like I'm here over with Pete Kipley CCM producer who I'd known back from those band days 
I had met him way back when. I'd known him a long time. He's like, hey, we're doing this track. You mind coming down and playing drums on something? Sure. Come down and play drums. Of course. Well, why wouldn't you? Right. right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I go down there and play, and um, and I'm sitting there with Pete, and uh, he's like, hey, I got a buddy of mine, Sean Schenkel, who's he's producing this thing for Rebecca St. James for this Narnia soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Hey, will you come in and... He wants to do a couple of songs. Will you play them for this? Sure. So I sit and I play a couple of songs for that. And Sean starts using me on everything. And he was Keith Thomas's assistant who did Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith. And so he started off from working with him. And now Sean is doing all this stuff. And Sean, he's real good friends with Reed Shippen, who's a big mix guy. And those two relationships, and I had known Reed from back in the band guys' days too, so mm-hmm. I know him from way back in the day. Yep. Um, and it's just kind of rekindling all these relationships, and because of that, I just wound up working on so many different records with Sean. I mean, but that was that was kind of what set you off on this path. Yeah, and being able to do this full time. Yeah, really is. Yeah, you get a phone call to go play down right yes. down the road here. Yeah, and then I met a new, I met someone new, and it just kind of. It clicked. Clicked, and the next thing I know, I'm playing all these different records. And it wasn't like I was busy. All of a sudden, I was busy seven days a week, you know, 10 hours a day. But, you know, it was still a struggle, still filling in the things with little things here, there, still with local artists trying to get anything. But it was filling in with those things, and that was the catalyst for, because of that, then other producers called me, and then I played on other records. And then then I had another, my other, another, another relationship from back in the day who I'm still friends with Alan Salmon. I mean, it was because of that band I was in back then, mm-hmm. I, he was a kid in a band that this guy produced that I worked with. And so now he was producing and writing. And so I got to meet him who hooked me up with another guy who was writing, who was producing, you know what I mean? So it's like yeah. all these different relationships were just because I took one thing, it led to other things. Yep. That's why it's like starting out. It's just like, Take anything, because you never know. In my my experience, I never know where that next lead or that next step is going to come from. Mm-hmm. In my experience, the people that the people that have asked for my number or a card, I don't I don't have business cards. I don't believe in them. At least in Nashville, maybe in another town, but not around here. If anyone who asked for a card or my number, in my experience, they've never called me. Where do I get the next thing from? It is some random person calling me and I pick it up and it's some random, I got your name from so-and-so, we do do this. It's the most random thing. The other one, to lead up to this other story, so I started the studio in my house and it was, started doing all this work and it was going great. But you're, but this all this other work is for other places, right? Well, I, Sean started doing all the work with me at my house. It, okay, doing it at your house. Yeah. Okay, not start, going to other yeah, studios. Yeah, he started, that, I think that was the only time I'd ever played with him in another studio. Okay, Everything else was back at my house. Okay. Because Reed, who was the mix engineer that he worked with, loved the sounds at my place. He loved the sounds I was getting. Okay. So he was sending me work too. Um, he's like, oh, send it to Ben. His sounds are great, you know? And that was the other reason why I started tracking drums because early on in my career working with Quinn and the bands, like I had worked with so many engineers and I, I'd go into the control room and I always hated the drum sounds they got. I'm like, that's what you're getting? sounds horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, having done it, I knew I could do better. Or at least I liked it better. Right. You know, better is so subjective. What's a good right. drum sound? In my it, opinion. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, what's a good drum sound? You know, it's like the one that everyone else likes. It's right. like, it doesn't matter. But I I liked it better. And so that was one another catalyst for why I wanted to do it. It's like, 
I don't like how everyone else is doing it. I like how I do it. Let's do that. Right. And other people liked it too. Sure. So it worked out. And also too, that was back, I was one of the first people in town to start doing that. Not the first, but one of the first to really have a studio in their home because now everyone has recording themselves at home. But back then in 2005, that was kind of a new idea. Not everyone was doing it yet. So I was ahead of the curve there. So you're a pioneer in the home recording industry, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> awesome. people had started to, but not to the point that it is required now. Right. And so that started growing. And then I wound up getting married. And it's like the studio was in the house for like when we got married. It's like, okay, this can't stay in the house forever. So eventually things are going to change. You know, literally drums are in the living room. Room, mic- room mics were in my bedroom. I was cutting vocals in my daughter's room. You know, it's I mean, it's like, it's yeah. just not something you can sustain for long term. Sure. You know, there wasn't another space in the house to put it. I had taken over the entire house. So something had to change. So my wife and I, we found this house in Berry Hill, which is an area of Nashville, just a couple miles from Music Row. That's kind of the new Music Row. There's so many studios over in Berry Hill now. It's a really populated studio area. And so we found a house over there. This guy was selling. So I bought this house and moved the studio over there, which is a pretty big risk. You know, it's definitely, it's a buying another house. So financially, it was a pretty big risk. But uh, I had started working at that time because another connection, because of Reed, I'd worked with this artist, Adam Anders, um, who wound up doing music with Glee, the TV show. I'd met him and I was working on a record for him and his wife. And I'd met this other musician, Ilya Tashinsky. And because of that, I met this guy who started using me on so many country demos. And I started doing a bunch at my place there. And then when I moved over to the other place in Berry Hill, we just continued that over there. And that even grew even more. I mean, I was doing, I hate to think, probably 10 or 15 sessions a month, country demo sessions Mm -hmm. with him a month. And that's five songs in three hours. So I don't know, that's a lot of songs. Yeah. (laughs) playing and at that time so when i would do those and i did this for years so i was playing i would have a a pro tool set up by my drums a mirrored mouse and keyboard recording and playing drums all at the same time Mm -hmm. and engineering and doing punch ins and building loops all this while playing drums yep it's exhausting yep a friend of mine does the exact same thing yeah and it's i work with and so Ilya, having that relationship got me to meet a lot of country writers. A lot is country writers, just writers in general. And it, because people would come in there all the time, you know, meeting new people. And because of that, um, there's so many other relationships I'm skipping out on. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> there's so many other aspects to the story. But uh, and so I just started doing a lot, lot, lot more of that. And, um, and then I wound up even earlier than that, I started wind up getting back into mixing, started tracking. Then I wanted to do more mixing and uh, mixing at first. Oh, it's so horrible. I still remember, still remember one of the first demo things I mixed. It was for Matthew West. He let me mix something that I'd worked on for him. It was so horrible. <laughs> Go back and think of it. Oh, that was such a horrible mix. It was so wretched. <laughs> Is it, did it end up on an album or was it just for a demo? It was for a demo, but okay. their song made the record. I mean, okay. they, they redid it. Um, for for the record, okay. but yeah, um, but it was a demo that I I'd, I'd played on and engineered and cut with him and and I'd started that relationship because of Tim Lauer, because of Ian, because of 
it's right. all these other relationships. So you can just go go back yep. on, and it's uh, it's so important to have all those relationships and just kind of being open to whatever happens because you just never know what's going to happen. And uh, and then so I started mixing more and more, and then probably about five years ago, I started mixing more and more, and then because of Ilya, I met uh, a writer Shane McAnally mm-hmm. that everyone might know because of Songland. Songland. Yeah. But this was before he was Shane McAnally. Right. He, <laughs> he was a broke songwriter. You know, we started working together a lot. We did tons of stuff together. How did you meet him? Through, through, through Ilya, through those, okay, one of those yeah, sessions yeah. with, with yeah. Ilya. And we started working and I worked with him and Brandy Clark and Old Dominion and Sam Hunt and all those people before they were anybody. Right. Um, and even and this is all doing like de- doing demo work for them, mm-hmm. pretty much. And even Casey Musgraves before she was Casey Musgraves. Mm-hmm. So I got to work with a lot of those artists and wind up, you know, not only did I play on it and track it, but I got to mix it. And you know, because when you're playing on it and tracking things, especially those demo sessions, they go so fast. Because Ilya would have like each song would be a different writer, so it'd be like this revolving door of songwriters each song. So it's like. You can you can't see it, but my finger is spinning around in a circle like right. a revolving door, and so the, you don't get a lot of time with those writers or artists or whoever a lot of times. But if you wind up mixing it and doing vocals, you wind up having a lot more time to sit and talk, like we're doing now. I mean, anytime a writer or artist comes and we're doing vocals, you always wind up sitting and talking like this. You know, right. things just come up. You just talk for five yeah, minutes, sometimes an hour. Yeah. You know, it just you know, and you you get to build that relationship with them. But I started mixing all this stuff with Shane. And um, a lot of demos, and I, I still do. Still, most of my work is is demos. Uh, you know, I I I, I always kind of laugh at it. Yeah, people pay me to to practice because that's kind of like to me what mixing a demo is. It's like right. it's it's stuff that outside of the industry, no one will ever hear. Or because except for one ex- time. But yeah. Okay, so let's explain what a demo is for sure. someone listening who may not know. Yeah, what it is if they're not even in the music business or just, they're just listening for the fun of it, or somebody's wanting to get into doing demo work as opposed yeah. to doing something that's going to end up on on an actual album that's released. What is the difference between the demo and the master, and how yeah. that works? Yeah, and if you're not in Nashville, most people don't know what a demo is. Okay. I tell people they're like, "What's a demo?" It stands for demonstration recording. Basically, if a writer or an artist um, they they write a song and they want to record a demonstration of that song so they can play for their manager, their label, whoever, and kind of either get an artist to record that song or they want to record that song so they can show this is how it could go. Okay. And a lot of times it winds up exactly like that, but better on the radio. Okay. Most of the time it winds up sounding, a lot of times they just copy the demo. Okay. Do they ever just you end up using the demo? Using the demo? Um, like th- or at least taking the tracks from the demo and building on top of that? Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. I mean, there is one case with the Chris Jansen, the Buy Me a Boat song that mm-hmm. I did. That was a demo. Okay. It was the demo recording. It was the demo mix. That okay. was version one of the mix. Okay. No. Re- so what you did for a demo ended up being on the actual album itself. Yes. Was literally the record that was on the radio. Okay. But that is really, really rare. Right. <laughs> um, it has never happened before or since with me. Okay. But because of that, I got to, you know, work on a couple more albums with him mm-hmm. and have some, you know, more success with him on some other songs. But we recorded those for the record, not just 
for demos. Mm -hmm. But that one was the demo that wound up taking off. Okay. But sometimes they will use the tracks, you know, and just add to it. But most of the time they re-record it. Okay. And what does, if you can, if you can share this just on average, not you specifically, but on average, what does someone normally charge an artist or a writer to do a demo? Just on average. Just on average, yeah. Well, I can just, from what I've been told, the, um, like a publisher or a writer, they, they have a budget for a demo. Mm-hmm. And on the country side of things, it's going to vary. It's going to vary from writer to writer, and it's going to vary from genre to genre. But in the country side of things, an average demo cost, their budget is around $800. Okay. It's pretty cheap. Yeah. It's very cheap. Um. That's for a full-blown full, demo. That's a full-blown demo. A lot of times it goes over. Um, sometimes it goes under. But most of the time it's probably going to be over. Okay. A little bit. Um, that's that's pretty cheap. I mean, but, you know, when you're considering... That's per song. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're talking about, you know, major labels doing records for major artists and they're spending two, three, four, five hundred thousand, you know, they're spending twenty, thirty, forty thousand a song. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> You know, thousands, not that much money. Yeah. Um, but then you're talking about contemporary Christian music, $1,000 a song is still pretty cheap, but there's still only maybe, that's maybe 10000 a record if you did 1000 a song, and they're, they want to keep it around twenty or thirty grand a song mm-hmm. for the whole record. That's still pretty cheap, where country's going to be like, I mean, they're going to be probably at least one hundred fifty to two hundred grand. That's on a cheap record. Oh, like for the record. 15 to 20 grand a song. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, as opposed to CCM's going to be closer to, Two to four thousand. Yeah, that's a big difference. It's a big difference. That's interesting. Yeah, I want people to know they're listening. Like they're listening to this, going, "What fifteen twenty thousand dollars a song? Like, why would you spend that much money?" Yeah, on a song. It seems outrageous. I know. You know, like, what is it that makes a song worth fifteen twenty thousand dollars? Yeah. You know, like can can you give any insight into that? At that point, I mean, I have my experience of what I've. What I've seen to get a better detailed picture, you probably need to would ask someone that actually works at a label. Okay. That that's their job. Yeah. Can explain it more. I, I I know having produced records, where budget and where that stuff, where like where does that money go? I guess is kind of what I'm hearing you say. Right. It's like if I have, like if you can do a, if you can do a demo for a thousand dollars. Yeah. And you're paying because you're paying the musicians to play on it. And then your time as an engineer and producer and mixer and, you know, yeah. to put it all together. Okay, that's a thousand bucks. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. But then to add another ten or 15,000 on top of that, of what you've already done, it's like, okay, are you just spending that much more time on a mix? Are you adding, like, it's just a curious curiosity of like, what could possibly cost that much more money well, to come with the same outcome technically? Yes. <laughs> so first of all, a lot of it is time. A lot more time. I mean, like, from the time I hit record to the time I'm done on a song. So on a demo, you're talking, we track a song. I do all the recording except for vocals in 30 to 40 minutes per song. Everything? Everything. Do you, are you track, you're tracking everything all at once? Like all everybody once. in a room? Yes. For country? Yes. Okay. And so, and then you got um, vocals. If you have, a, if I have a really good singer, I one of the, buddies that I work with all the time, he's a fantastic singer. We can do leads and backgrounds in 15 minutes. Wow. So you're talking less than an hour of recording time. Yeah. And then I edit, tune, mix, 
that's probably three or four more hours right there. So mm-hmm. by the time I'm all done it, it's like four or five hours a song. Mm-hmm. That's pretty stinking fast. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one way. Uh, and also too, as far as the musicians, the pay is vastly different between a demo and a quote master. And there's different variations of master depending on what the budget is. So when you're dealing with budgets of 150 to 200 to 300,000 or, or upwards per album per, per album because a lot of times too they'll they'll overcut so they may only be 10 songs in the record but they may record 15 to 20 songs right but only 10 songs make the record so that's another reason why those records cost a bigger budget yeah so that's that's one factor okay um, the other factor is on uh, on a demo the musicians will only make 60 bucks an hour which is pretty good. 180 bucks. For three hours. So they're making hours. about 60 bucks an hour. Right. The, the musician. So each right. musician. So if, I think that's what they make, but I think it'll actually cost like $200 because you have to pay health welfare pension. You got to pay this other stuff that they don't necessarily get. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like you pay into this thing, but. Now, are these, all, because, are these all, always union players? Yes. Do you ever use non-union players? All the time. Okay. So you can do either one. Yeah, but the union is a whole other discussion. Right. Yeah, that's another podcast. That's, that's that's another podcast. So the musicians just on a record, on those big budget records, all of a sudden they go from making you know, $180 for three hours to on a double scale master session, they're making $750 in three hours. Regardless if you're union or not? Yeah. If it goes, if it go, it has to all go, th- either way, it has to go through the union. Even if you're not a union right, member, yeah. you still have to, your pay still goes through the union. Correct. So it, it looks the same. It doesn't really matter. Right. So it, it's all paid the same. Yeah. And, and there's always a leader on that too. And there's a leader on both of them. And the leader always makes double. So the leader would make, I mean, so if you're doing three sessions a day, you're making almost two grand a day. And if you're a leader, you could be making four grand a day. So session work is really, really well paid work if you can get it. Yes, and making it consistent. And then also too, then also now they've, there used to be their special payments and now there's the thing where they're getting uh, royalties off of streaming. So, you know, I think the average pay across the country is like $300 a year off of streaming for a musician. But there's guys in town that'll make 50, 100, 200 grand a year just off of streaming royalties, off of number one songs they played on. These are just the players. This is not the just artists. the players. It's not the artists or anything else. Just the players. And that's kept tracked through the union. Uh, not really. No, that's through another organization. Um, after SAG AFTRA. Oh yeah, SAG so AFTRA. It's, yeah. it's a it's a different thing. Right. And yeah. they keep track of that. Correct. So, um, but those are rare. I mean, that's like the top echelon yeah. of the players. I right. mean, most players are not making that kind of money. Yeah. If you make a few thousand, it's like Taylor ex- Swift's players and. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, it, I mean, most players are probably making a few thousand dollars a year. Yeah, extra, but you know, it's something. It's there. It's there. It's income. Yeah. It's income. So, but that's only off of those big records. You don't get that off of demo work, right? You know, you're, you're only you're getting like, that off. You're of the paid big up record. front, basically. On to the do... demo, you get paid up front, and that's it. Yeah. Unless it gets, if that track gets, your playing gets put on the, gets used for the actual record, right? Then you get upgraded, so you'll actually get that seven hundred fifty dollars again, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you're kind of getting paid twice. You're getting paid twice. You're supposed to. Doesn't <laughs> Spo- always supposed that's to a, be in the keyword. <laughs> again, a lot more other discussions. So yeah, so that's one way how. So all of a sudden, your musician cost is just quadrupled. Okay. 
and then you're going to do more time and do more overdubs again quadrupled in musician expense and then your engineering expense is a lot more because you got to have an engineer on all those overdub sessions and then your studio cost a lot of times you know your studio for a demo is going to be a less expensive studio for a demo than for a record not always but sometimes mm -hmm. sometimes studio for a record is two grand a day just for the studio everything when you're doing a record at that level everything everybody raises their rates all of a sudden your mix rate goes from x to it is quadrupled you got a bigger budget it's going to cost you more yeah just because you can just because you can yeah not because you're doing more work necessarily or or better work quote unquote right but just because the budget's more therefore you're going to pay me more yeah because and, it's part of it and the reason that that is is because on a demo is that publisher going to make that much more money? They're not going to sell, but on a on a record label, their potential to make more money off of that song is huge. Right. So in other words, it's like they're only willing to pay that because they have to, first of all, demo 10 times more songs than the record label records. So their budget is going to have to be lower and they're not going to make as much money off of that. Once. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's like, it's once you start looking at the, the business side of that and where that money's coming from, the labels are making so much more money off of that one song. So of course they're going to have to pay more. Right. And, and as far as an engineer, engineers don't get royalties, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, so you need to get all your money up front. Right. So all of a sudden your rate goes from your demo rate to your record rate and it's quadrupled. Right. Because the life of the song is going to make money for yes. years and years to come. Right. But you as the engineer or the mixer or producer and, or whatever, it that it's just in the time that you're creating the song. And now, once it's done... A producer is supposed to A producer to get, can get, get, get more. Can yeah, get yeah. royalties, yeah. But, but the engineer and the mixer and those types of things it's just for the life of creating the song that's what you're getting paid for once that's done the song is going to continue to live on but you making money off of it doesn't right and even as a musician the royalties how they figure that out is so convoluted i don't quite understand it like yeah. there's number one songs i've played on that i don't get paid royalties for hmm. why like how they figure that out i've never understood that yeah so it's like and if it's not on the radio you're not going to get a royalty on it Right. So just because it's on the record, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get... Yeah, you get royalties with... if it sells. Right. Suppose You're supposed to. Yeah. You know, on a, in a CD or, or a download or whatever. Yeah. It, and so, and again, I don't quite know how they figure that out. You could do your research on that yeah. yourselves and figure that out. But so even as a musician, there's still no guarantee that you're going to get paid on the back end. Right. For that particular song. Who knows? But yeah, hopefully that answers the question. I've, I'm trying to train as lost Yeah, no, that's... Yeah. That's great information. I think yeah. that's stuff that's really good for for all of us to hear. And even even me, like, okay, I'm in this business. I do this. I do demos and yeah. um, you know, and I track for different things and produce things or whatever, but just to be able to hear it, have the conversation and say it out loud. Yeah. Sometimes it's just good to hear it again and again, you know, because it is so complicated and it so much of this stuff overlaps with each other and you don't necessarily understand just like you're saying, like I, you said, I don't know where, why I'm not getting paid for such and such, yeah. whatever. It's like, and you've been doing this for years. Yeah. You know, there's so many aspects of the business that are just kind of clouded or yeah. hid, hidden away. It's like, in no, I'm not sure if anybody really understands. Somebody does somewhere. And that's part of what the show is, is trying to find those niche people that are kind of hidden away yeah. in the nooks and crannies of the music industry and to kind of get them out in the open and say, okay, how does this work? Yeah. You know, for people to know that. And that goes for those of us that have been doing this for 20, 20 plus years. Yeah. We're still learning stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Constantly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's encouraging for people to hear that even the even veterans 
yeah. of the business are still learning things and having to figure it out. I, yeah, to say I don't have it figured out is an understatement. Because also, too, I, I keep having to grow and expand and change. Right, because you changed from being a drummer yeah. full-time yeah. to now to switching into engineering yeah. and mixing yeah. while you're drumming. So now you're doing two or three things at once. Yeah, and now I'm not really drumming. And now you don't even really drum. Now you're just not full-time much, yeah. mixing and engineering kind of stuff. Yeah. And back to that story a little bit, because I remember... Again, because of an Ilya session I was doing. Okay. And there was a guitar player in the session that I've known a long time, Adam Schoenfeld. He's like, hey, what are you doing here tomorrow? I said, nothing. I say, hey, can I do an overdub here with Scott Hendricks? Sure. Again, another opportunity. Scott Hendricks has had 40 or 50 number ones over 50, over like four decades. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Right. Huge producer. It's done everybody from Alan Jackson and Hank Williams Jr. and now Blake Shelton to name a few. Yeah. And because of that relationship, I met him and we just hit it off and apparently I'm really fast in Pro Tools. So I started editing, I probably edited 10 or 12 records for him. Mm-hmm. Now, huge records, like big time records, like four or five Blake Shelton records and okay, a bunch of other records for him. So let's take, so let's talk about that for a second. I yeah. love that you've done so many different things. That's one yeah. of the reasons I wanted to talk with you and have you on the show Yeah, is because you've done so many different parts of the business yeah, and you're doing it at a really high level now, but somebody's listening, wanting to get into, maybe I want to be an editor on an yeah. album. Well, people don't know what, what is an editor? What does that mean? What do you do as an editor yeah. for a song? Yeah. I mean, first of all, all the, all the demos I do, I edit all of them. Yeah. But, but working for Scott Hendricks on that thing, Man, he kicked my ever-loving butt in a kind way. Um, he was one of the toughest people I've ever worked for okay. and the hardest people that I've worked for and also one of the kindest people okay. and generous people that I've worked for. He really took me under his wing. I don't know why. He just did. And for three or four years there, I mean, all of a sudden I'm editing – Blake Shelton Records, and then he hooks me up with Ross Copperman, and I'm working on stuff for the TV show Nashville, and then editing Brett Eldridge, and I'm editing Jana Kramer and all this other stuff. And how he kicked my butt was I thought I knew how to edit. I mean, I was really fast at Pro Tools, but I thought I knew how to edit. I didn't know how to edit until I started working with Scott Hendricks. Okay. Uh, And he has the reputation of being a Nazi with that, and he is. But I went into it going, you know what? This guy has how many number one hits? This is an opportunity to learn something. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really took my ego out of it. I didn't get mad when he said, do it again. I'm like, screw you. You know, I'm like, I know what I'm doing. It's like, no, I said, okay, how can I learn from this? What can I do better? Let's, what is he listening at? I'm trying to get inside his mind and what is he listening at? What do I need to learn? What do I need to get to? Okay. And so he would he would hear things that I'm like, how do you hear that? Okay. Like what? Give me an example. Um, there was one time, uh, like tuning background vocals. Like most background vocals, you know, I just tune. 100%. Just, just go crazy. Just whatever you need to tune. Just tune them until they're in, you know, until they sound. Who's ever going to solo them? Right. He would solo them with headphones. And it's like, oh, there's a little bitty artifact. Fix it. What? You heard that? Or if there's got a little bitty hi-hat that's like, you know, five milliseconds off, he'd hear it. If there's a little bitty flam, 
he'd hear it. If there's a little bitty clip or a little bitty thing, or if there's a crossfade or a thing that's not just right, mm-hmm. he would hear it. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Like, so to the point, like now, he- Could you hear it? At first, no. Okay. I can now. Okay. And it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of a, it's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. <laughs> I, I understand. I, I do it myself. Yeah, so, so I get it. I mean, and he, he taught me to, to edit with headphones. Mm-hmm. So he got me using the headphones he uses, and he got me hooked up with them and using a pair of Grado headphones. With those things, I can hear edits and hear things that you can't hear with speakers. What kind of headphones are they again? Grado headphones. Grado? Mm-hmm. Spell that. G-R-A-D-O. Okay. It's a small family-owned company out of Brooklyn, New York. Okay. And they make headphones from $40 up to $1,400. So all the different price ranges. Yeah. And the ones I have are the RS1s, which are about $700. Okay. They're not cheap. Yeah. But they're, you know, and again, it's what I like. It's what I'm used to. I by no means think there's only one set of headphones or one set of speakers. I think they're all individual and it's subjective as to what you think sounds good. But it works for you. It works for me. Yep. And so just being able to edit on those and... I've just been there so many nights staying up till two or three o'clock in the morning, just editing and editing and listening and listening and mm-hmm. listening and get it over. I mean, I remember one of the craziest stories. <laughs> this was, uh, I'd already done a few records for him and I was doing that Blake Shelton Christmas record and I edited and tuned everything on that record. I even, I replayed drums on one of the songs and I did so much stuff on that record and I was editing that song, um, home. They redid it for that record. He put it on a previous record, but he redid it for the Christmas record with Michael Bublé and his wife at the time, Miranda, was also on it. So they all three were singing on it. And they were in the studio mixing it with Kneebank. And Scott called me and said, Michael Bublé and Miranda never sang that last line with Blake. You need to make them sing that. Okay. So I had to figure out a way to make Michael Bublé and Miranda sing a harmony and a line with Blake Shelton that they had never sung and make it so you couldn't hear it. Mm-hmm. So you're cutting and pasting from phrases earlier And I don't even song. remember how I did it. Yeah. I, I don't. And, and by the way, we're in the studio mixing. So by the way, you got to get this done. Awesome. Like right now. And what happens if you don't? They're losing time in studio, wasting away from me to get, get that done. Yeah. They're spending money. And money and money and money, you know, studio monies, engineer money, all this stuff, just sitting, waiting on me, you know, and it's my job to sit there and fix it. And uh, I did. I don't, again, I don't know how I did it, but I somehow copied and pasted and moved things around and retuned. But, you know, you had to, it had to be the point that you could solo each part with headphones and not hear any artifacts. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy thing to do. I've had to learn all sorts of different tricks and tools in editing to manipulate audio to get it to where you can't hear the edit. Yep. I've been there. I do it myself. <laughs> and there's so many tools. It's and hard. It is, it is, it is really, really hard and it's very time consuming. And I, and I've gotten really, really fast at it to the point now it's like I can, for a record, I can edit the entire song, drums, bass, not, not including vocals in like four hours. Mm-hmm. That's fast. Yeah. It's really fast. For all the instruments. Yeah. All the instruments. That's really fast. Yeah. That's like triple checking everything and everything's, you know, I've just learned how to get really fast at it and just have a system down. But I've also learned to slow down and listen and it's not done until it's done. You know, it's that because that's what Scott told me too is like slow down. He wants, he'd rather have it right than fast. 
Right. Even if it's costing money Again, to the label he's, and he's everyone dealing with these budgets and he's, well, he's A&R, he's, he might've been president at the time, but you know, he's high up at the label. He works at the label. So mm-hmm. it's like, so yeah. And they're dealing with budgets that are, what's another thousand dollars. Right. He doesn't want to have to keep spending if he doesn't have to. Sure. But at the same time, it's like spend an extra thousand dollars to get it right. Who cares? Because you're going to make, they're going to make it up in the long run. Yeah. I think that Christmas record alone went platinum the first year. In the Mm -hmm. first season, it sold a million copies. Mm -hmm. So what do they care how much it cost? Right. You know, it's like it cost 300 grand to make it. Oh, well, we just, you know, made that back in two months. Right. So that, that was just one of those experiences that just, because he would call me many times and, and be like, that's not right. And a phone call like that from him is the most, it's terrifying, huh? It's terrifying. Absolutely <laughs> terrifying. You're like, oh my gosh, what did I do wrong? And, um, so like uh, when, when he says, okay, th- that's not right. Like, is there, uh, I'm surely he's giving you specifics uh, on he, what it is. Is it just like, is it because, okay, there's a, there's a pop or a click somewhere that you missed or the crossfade, like there's a breath that is getting cut kind of a thing that he's hearing and you're not, or is it, just like the overall, like, you know, that needs to shift this way instead of being this way. Like you're moving parts backwards or forwards to what sounds good to you. But to him, it sounds, that's not what I wanted. I want this instead kind of a thing. Does that make sense? It, it does. Um, I, usually he wouldn't be that specific. Usually it would just be like, this needs to be tighter. Okay. Like a, a, a hi-hat lining just up with in the general, kick. Just Or just overall. The whole song needs to be tighter. Yeah. It's too loose. Yeah. Maybe. And by loose, you mean like the drums and the all the instruments lining up on the being on the what beat I, together. What I what I learned from him, most of the stuff I would solo each instrument to a click and put everything on a sixteen or thirty second note grid. Yep, it's that tight. Yeah, locked down to the grid. Yep, and, and that's what pop country music is. Yeah, nowadays. and and, and he would and is. he would say he he would say I don't want this real tight, but that's not what he meant. He meant I want it locked down to the 16th or 32nd note to a grid. Even if he said, I don't want this one all that tight. In my experience, most people say that. They don't really mean that. Right. Maybe only once I've ever done that and someone actually meant that. Okay. Like they didn't really want it that tight. But because most people can't hear that difference. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. They, they can't hear that five milliseconds difference between a kick and a bass. Right. I can feel it and hear it. And to me, and I think Scott would say this too, it's like, the reason I don't like that, I want that stuff to be tighter because it's distracting from the song and the melody. Ultimately, that's why I'm editing this stuff. I'm not editing it to be perfect for perfect sake. I'm editing it to make the song and make the vocal stand out and be better because I want to focus on what I need to focus on the vocal, not the fact that the kick and bass aren't tight. Right. Does that make sense? Sure. It's like, And so um, Anything that's distracting, I need to fix it. If it's pulling my ear away from what I need to be listening to, that's what I need to fix. Even though the audience, the consumer that's buying and listening to the song on the radio or online or CD or whatever it is, they're never going to hear that. They're not going to hear that five millisecond. They, they'll never hear it. But in my experience, I think if, if enough of those are left unfixed, they'll, they'll feel it. They may not tell you why something's off and why they don't like it. I'm not saying that, that, they, that they're going to like or dislike something because of the editing. I don't think that's true. I think ultimately, I think it's the emotion of the song that, mm-hmm. uh, that attracts the people. I, I think editing is just a tool to help get there. Yeah. And I've, I've done things where I haven't edited things. 
sometimes the song doesn't need it. I'm not right. saying I'm it always going to. It needs to be loose. Sometimes it needs to be loose. You know, and and that's okay. It's the emotion of the song is what I'm trying to, you know, to, to get lifted out. And editing is just a tool that is used sometimes to get there. Mm-hmm. In Scott's case, the stuff that he was working on, he wanted it to be really, really tight. Sure. And that worked for that genre and for what he was doing in that particular song. It's not always the right thing. Because you hear, I hear songs on the radio all the time that are loose as all get out, and it works. I mean, my first thing that comes to mind is Soul Sister. That song is a huge hit. Listen to that song. It's loose all over the place. It feels horrible to me. Hmm. But it's great. Yeah. It works. Yeah, it's an emotion. It's an emotion. It works for that, for that thing. Mm-hmm. So it's not always necessary, but, you know, it just it depends on what your ultimate goal is and what you're going yeah. for. And you got into working with Scott, again, because of Ilya, right? In, indirectly, yeah. Yeah. You got yeah. connected because of that. Yeah. Said someone, hey, someone needs to come in and, and do an overdub at your studio. Yeah. And it ends up being Scott. Yeah. I, and I didn't really know who Scott Hendricks was at the yeah. time. But you connected with him. Yeah. And built a relationship. And now, yeah. and look at you now. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know about that. But yeah. <laughs> but that, that, that opened up a lot of doors to be able to have him and the records like that on my resume for sure to mm-hmm. be able to say hey i've worked on those projects it it automatically gives you clout even though i'm not really any different or whatever but people like to see that on a resume sure it's like what have you worked on it's like i don't feel like i've gotten to the place that I feel satisfied in my career. It still feels unsatisfied mm. in some ways. Like I'm still striving for that next thing. I'm still pushing for how can I improve and get better? How do I get to the next level? Yeah. What is that next mark I need to get to? And that's interesting to hear you say that because for people that are listening, just barely getting into this business or people that have even been in it for years that haven't gotten to where you are currently, yeah. they're thinking, man, I just want to get to where he is. Yeah. You know, he's he's working on all these huge country records or CCM records or whatever it is, and he gets to work with all these amazing artists and writers and producers and yeah. these. You know, well, man, that's my that's my quote unquote dream is to do those yeah. things. And like we talked about at the beginning, you know, we are l- looking back over twenty plus years yeah. of of being in it, having to look back and say, oh, I've actually done quite a bit. Yeah, You know, I've got to do some pretty cool things, but when you're in the middle of it, you don't think about it. You're like, just trying to think of how do I get to the next thing? Absolutely. And that's what you're saying. It's like, even now you've been in it for 20 years or whatever, yeah. doing huge things, whether yeah. it may not seem like it to you, but you're yeah. doing huge stuff, Yeah. you know? And even though you're thinking, I'm just looking for the next thing. I'm, I'm not satisfied with what I've done yet. I want to do more or better or whatever. Yeah. Even from my perspective, sitting on this side, I'm like, dude. You've done huge stuff. Like I would love to be able to s- sit and say I've done a fraction of what you've done. Yeah. In that in that position. Yeah. So that's interesting. I think that's that's good for people, the audience, to hear that saying that okay, I've been in this for so long and I've done really big stuff. Yeah. I'm still looking for the next thing. Yeah. There's never, there is no finish line. No. And I think that's hard. Not. Yeah. I think it can be tricky for us. Yeah. Because there is no ultimate agenda. No. It's like, okay, what's the next thing? What can I do now? How can I improve on this? How can I work with so-and-so and, you know, just get into di- different things that I've never had a chance to do. Yeah. And it's never going to end. 
you're never going to be satisfied. You're right. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. oh, goodness, is that worth that? Well, if this is what you're meant to do, it's worth it. It is because, I mean, I still love my job. Yeah. I love coming to work on Monday morning. I still love mixing and making music. Now, you, and you work for yourself. You're self-employed. Yeah. yeah. Even though you're you're working for Scott Hendricks or, uh, or working with different other people, it's yeah. your... Your business, you're like you're a contractor. Yeah, contract labor and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, taxes are fun. Yeah, said with sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, so now you said that you sold your studio. Yeah, and now we're up here in Seagale Music Publishing House because you've got a little studio that you rent out up here. Why did you end up selling what you had been working at for so many years? to transition into what it is you do now. And what is it that you do now up here? Um, good question. Um, so so the reason that I sold that studio, so I had been I had that studio for probably around 10 years and I was still working a lot. Again, I was trying to get to the next level and I feel like that, that studio, it seems like it was a blessing and a curse. I think it created a lot of opportunities and it prevented a lot of opportunities. People especially in Nashville, um, which is all I can speak about because that's all I know, they like to put you in a box. You're the guy with the studio. Uh, oh, we can only call Ben for a session at his studio. And unfortunately, they're not cutting Dirk Bentley records at my studio. They're going to Blackbird spending two grand a day on a, on a studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how those records work. And to do anything else doesn't compute in their head. You know, They feel like that's how we've always done it. That's how you have to do it. And so you're not changing that mindset. So I've had to learn that I'm still learning that there's a game being played and I can choose to play it or I can choose not to play it. Okay. But I have to accept the fact that there is a game. Okay. And what is the game? That's a very good question. Oh. What is the game? What is the game? What What is the game? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's music business and it's politics and it's relationships and in, in my experience, the only thing I really have and can control, I can't even, well, the only thing I can really control is my attitude about it all. I can't really control anything else about it. Um, but ultimately what I want to put out there in the music business is really my reputation. Because if I don't have a good reputation, I don't have anything. Mm-hmm. I, f- I find that extremely crucial to, to be of honest and integrity because that's something that I think follows you. Sure. Good and bad. And it kind of goes back to those relationships. I think that helps those relationships. And uh, sometimes you lose out in short term because of that. But I think ultimately that uh, it helps those relationships grow. And that's, you know, my experience, those relationships kind of come up together. And so you need those relationships early on and you kind of grow together. But back to your other question of, so how did I get out of that studio? So that studio, ultimately the reason I wanted to that studio and the ultimately my goal for a long time is I wanted to be the next Shannon Forrest or Chris McHugh and be playing on big country records, drums on big country records, like three sessions a day, six days a week. That was my goal. That's what I wanted. Okay. I played a lot of sessions, but those sort of sessions never happened. They okay. never came my way. And you were playing on big sessions. You played, played on big a, stuff. I played on big stuff, yeah. But those sort of records weren't coming to me. Almost all those records were at my place. Because like we said earlier, people, a lot of times people don't play in the same room. So I would track full band stuff, but I would also do a lot of stuff where it was just drums. 
So people would either come to me to just overdub drums or put drums on something. So that's how a lot of those records happened. And um, so those sort of records that I wanted, those $2,000 a day records, mm-hmm. weren't coming to me. Okay. So looking back, I'm very grateful that they didn't. Okay. Because I realized that that's ultimately not, that would not have satisfied me. Like if that's all I was doing was playing drums six days a week, I would go crazy. Okay. You know what I mean? It's like, sure. I thought, oh, I just want to play drums all the time. But I'm like, oh, if I just, that's all I was doing. That's, you know, um, it's hard to believe that that would sound miserable for someone that loves playing. But after you've played thousands and thousands of songs, after tens of thousands of hours and you're playing, you realize it's kind of the same song over and over. Right. You realize, okay, I really need something different. And so I'm very grateful it didn't work out that way. And I started mixing a lot more. And I started playing a lot less. And, th- and those drumming sessions just started going down and the mixing started going up. And I realized how much I enjoyed mixing and I just really wanted to focus on mixing and I really wanted to change people's perception of me as from the guy who has a studio and can do drums and kind of mixes to being the mix guy or the producer. Mm-hmm. And so, and also too, I got tired of, it was a combination of changing that and also too, just being a place in my life that I needed a change. And I was tired of the overhead of the studio and why am I paying for all this space if I'm hardly tracking you know what I mean? It's like, I'm just mixing. Why am I paying for a 1,500 square foot house every month if I'm not using it? Right. So it became a financial decision for me and my wife to just kind of to sell it and to me to focus my energies on what I really wanted to be doing. And just looking at that place in my life of really changing again, pushing myself to that next level. What is that next thing? What is that next chapter going to look like? And um, it was a really, really scary transition. It was it was maybe scarier selling it than it was buying it. Truthfully, yeah, um, because the fear was, you know, what if only people think of me as that studio and they never hire me again? Okay. Yeah, because you've done a lot of work there. I've done a lot. All my work was was it because all, was all my work because I had that place? Mm-hmm. Am I still going to get that work without that place? Right. I didn't know, um, and that was only. What, how many months ago? is five, six months ago now. Uh, so still fairly new in that transition. And uh, I'm very lucky. It's It's been really busy. You know, it it's worked out how I hoped that it would. In other words, it hasn't really changed what I've done or how much I've done. It's just changed location. Okay. So what are you doing specifically up here in this studio now? So up here in the studio now, I just do vocals and mix. Okay. Um. You track vocals here? Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, Is this for demo work or is this for master recording work, album stuff? Yes. I it, don't think there's... And, and also the other discussion is I don't really know, even though we talked about the difference and the vast difference there are between those two worlds, the other side of the equation is there's really not any difference. Right. <laughs> it's just a matter of if it lands, if they... You right. can record the demo and they can choose to put the demo on... The master recording. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's everything there. is still needing to be done at the highest level in the best way that it possibly can. Yeah, because what you do as a demo can be a master recording. There's I mean, not the any quality difference. is the I've same. I've heard masters that sound worse. Yeah, exactly. So and it, demos it, it, that sound phenomenal. Yeah. So or I've or the other way around. So yeah. it, whether it's a demo, it doesn't really matter. It's just sometimes on songs, you know, you know, demos are like you don't get a lot of time. 
And sometimes that works for that song. And sometimes you need a lot more time on a song to get it right. And you right. just don't have the time. Yeah. And those are the songs that you can tell the difference. But a lot of songs, it works out and it's it sounds one great. It's the same. Sure. Yeah. So it just kind of depends. Okay. But, so you're doing, you're tracking vocals up here. Yeah. And then you're mixing full album, full songs and mm -hmm. albums and things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm all inside the box mixing. Uh, I have enough outboard gear to go outside the box, but I just don't see why. <laughs> right. Well, I'm looking right now. I see some outboard gear that you're using. Outboard gear meaning physical yeah. compressors and EQs and things like that. So for people listening, you're like, what, what does that mean? Um, inside the box is yeah. everything in a laptop, plugins, yeah. all all computer-based software yep. kind of kind of stuff. And outboard is physical. You can turn a knob or a dial or yeah. a fader or whatever, that kind of thing. Yeah, and most of my outboard gear is at home. I have a lot more outboard gear at home because I have a setup at home that I can do drums if someone sends me stuff or I'm producing something, I need to put drums on something. So I have a lot of outboard gear there and my drums are set up there if I need to do something. Mm -hmm. um, I do it a few times a month, nothing, not a whole lot. So when you're mixing a song, mm -hmm. can you walk us through kind of your overall routine yes. when you're mixing one song? Yes. Like, what does that look like for you? And I have developed a routine. Okay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I have, I have and you have to. It's taken, it's taken years, but I think about it. I've been mixing probably over 250 songs a year for probably seven or eight years. Okay. It's a lot of songs. Yep. It's by no means the most songs, but it's still a lot of songs. No people that have mixed a thousand songs a year. So I don't know how they mix a thousand songs a year. So I don't know how you get it yeah. done that fast. But um, the process for me, so, and most of the stuff I'm mixing, I'm tracking. Not all of it, probably 80 to 85%. So you're engineering I'm as tracking well. it, engineering tracking it, it, and then I'm editing, I'm overdubbing, I'm mixing it, I'm programming it. Sounds it like my life. It. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I'm doing everything on the song. I, I like to be, in my experience, artists and writers, they have a very similar um, personality trait, and they're very creative, and they're very, they don't like to think too much about the scheduling and the details of things. They're, they want to be more creative side of things. And, and I'm kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. I like things very focused, very structured, very, I know I, I'm, I'm the weird musician engineer that I work eight to five and I don't work weekends. People go, how do you do that? It wasn't always that way, but with, with a family, that's what works for me. Yep. And, and I've, you know, it's, it's helped me and it's hurt me because People probably know me as the guy that you don't want to call to do is working on a weekend because I'm probably going to tell you no. <laughs> yeah, sure. But you have to have that space. I have to have that space. It, it helps me get away to have, and then I come in refreshed and I'm more creative. I don't think I'll wait for creativity to happen. I, I feel like I get in, I do the work where there's an opportunity for it to, to happen rather than just waiting randomly for right. it to happen. And I've, I feel like I do my best work first thing in the morning when I'm fresh and waking up and if it was up to me, if I didn't have to get kids ready and take kids to school, I would be at work at like seven and that would be amazing. Right. But that doesn't usually happen, unfortunately. So once I track it and I, I'm, I, and I usually go to another studio now and I'll track to do the it, tracking, to do the tracking, I'll go somewhere else and I'll track it and I'll bring the tracks back here and I open it up. And the first thing I, you know, uh, so you, you, when you're at the studio, you're engineering, I'm engineering, you're doing the whole bit. Yep. And you're, whether it's a bunch of musicians. Bunch of, there's usually five, at least five musicians. And I hire other, I don't usually play on those anymore. I'm hiring other drummers. Okay. It's all session guys, uh, guys, that most guys I've worked with for years. 
and so, which is odd for them because a lot of them at first are like, you're on the other side of the glass because mm-hmm. I wasn't in the drumming chair. So that a lot of them, it's kind of thrown them off. They're getting used to me seeing me in a different place. Yeah. But my process, so I, I've, I get the files. I could probably talk about this a long time. That's it's, fine. It's I mean, a, this, is, this is what I want people to to know that because there's somebody wants, that wants to be a mix engineer. Yeah. You know, and a producer, and you know, they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I actually do this? Yeah. How do I do it well? How do I condense? Because it might take them, you know, three days to do what it takes you eight hours to do. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that's why I want. Yeah, and a, a lot of a lot of this is I've learned so much, man. YouTube videos. <laughs> Yeah, podcast and other online videos of just watching how other people do it. And I've also got to see some really big mix engineers in town, their sessions, working on those big records. I see their mix sessions and I go, how are they setting those up? Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't copy it, but I take from it. I sure. go, okay, huh. Like, um, you know, you have like Reed Shippen who will have like 5,000 plugins and all this different Apple and it sounds amazing. Like, and then you get Nebank, who hardly does anything inside the box. The complete opposite ends of the spectrum of mix engineers. Mm-hmm. And they both sound great. So all I'd say is, like, there is no right or wrong. Right. So it's like, so taking all these different things and creating a process for me that works. And for me, and it has evolved greatly over the years. And ask me next year or two years from now, and it probably It'll will change. change again. It's constantly evolving. But where I am now in the process, so... It is, um, it is again, it's a combination of probably seven, eight different mix guys, their philosophies on setting up things and kind of what's, and I've stolen a little bit from each of them and what works for me. So I'll, I kind of like to mix as I go. So I, I get the track, and the first thing I do is I do a save as, and I'm sa- I save it as an OD, an overdub session, and that's where I start editing and mixing and cleaning up tracks. I duplicate playlist, duplicate all the playlists, I start editing editing drums, editing whatever, and then uh, and all the electric tracks or guitar tracks, if there's different parts, I'll, if there's two guitar tracks, I'll duplicate those and create maybe eight guitar tracks. So you'll have verse guitars, intro guitars, chorus guitars, solo, so everything will be broken out on separate tracks. And then on the drum side of things, I'll immediately, and I have templates for my uh, channel strips and there's no eq or presets or anything like that on there it's just plugins that are inactive on there and i can choose which plugins i'm going to have and so i just instantly will start mixing and eqing and blending things right there and finding out what's working and um i'll start eqing kick and snare and overheads and okay checking always checking phase between overhead and snares and different things i check it when i track it but I've noticed too that sometimes when I put plugins on different things, that changes. Phase is timing. And so you put a plugin on something as delay compensation, it's not delayed compensated correctly, it's gonna be out of phase from what you originally tracked it from, depending on which plugin you have on there. So things are constantly changing. So I'm just going back and double checking that. And also too, I learned from uh, someone years ago, phase is not a technical decision, it's a creative decision. So it's not just necessarily what's technically right, but what sounds right for the song. Right. It's all those different things. And um, and I start breaking that out, and then I kind of just I get a rough mix going. Okay, what's where's everything sitting? You know, working, finalizing the arrangement with as far as, like, guitar parts. Like, does the bass... Okay, well, the bass came in here. Does it need to come in there? Does it need to have a break before this first chorus? Does, does there need to be a little breath or a hit before here? And I can start adding in and, like, shh, 
little sweeps or booms, right. all those big crashes just kind of set stuff up. I can start setting those finalizer. Does there need to be another loop here? Does there need to be a loop in the chorus? Does there need to be something happening here? All these little production things I'm always adding, even to those demos. Like, okay, what needs to change? Okay, this guitar part's really the focus here. Okay, so I need to turn that up. Um, getting those, I like to get all that stuff ready even before I do vocals. So when the vocalists come in, there's a really good roughed in of kind of what it's going to sound like. So, and then I'll do vocals and I'll comp and I'll tune all that and background. So then, so there's my overdub session rough done, right? It's so, okay. So now it's time for mix. How many hours is that just for what you just talked about? <sighs> Depending on how long vocals take, assuming vocals are done fairly quickly, like within a half hour. Luckily, I don't work with a lot of bad singers. Yeah. And even if I do, in my experience, they're not going to get any better. I'm just going to tune it. Yeah. If I was doing a big record with a, someone that really stunk, I probably would take a lot longer. But most of the time, it's like if they know the song, and most of the time working with people, they're the writer, they know the song. Right. Or it's a demo singer, and they're a really good demo singer, and usually 30 minutes, and you're you're good. Mm-hmm. And then another 30 minutes comping and tuning it. So... And then all the editing I've done. So you're talking maybe hour and a half. So I can edit and clean up and get all that stuff done in 30 minutes to an hour plus another hour on vocals. Okay. Between comping and tuning and tracking. So you're looking at two hours you're in right there. Okay. And then you're looking at, and then I go into mix phase. And then I have a mix template. And my mix template is just a bunch of routing and effects and sends and parallels and two bus and stems it's all this so i'm not really dealing with uh, this is what my kick always sounds like or this is what my bait you know what i mean it's so all that changes but so my template is just routing so i i import my mix template in this and then i just route all my tracks out to that and then i'm i'm printing to an audio track so i put that in input and then i'm listening so now i'm listening to my rough mix the rough mix i've been working on that's what i start with so i'm not starting over it's just rerouting so now i can start adding in my parallel compression as needed, my reverbs as I need it, all that's there. Um, all my two bus compression, EQ, any of that stuff. And then also I have my mix template set up to where all my stems, so everything comes down to drums, bass, loops, percussion, acoustics, electrics, electric masters, steel, banjos, B3, piano, keys, synth, lead vocal, background vocals, pads. And so I have all those aux tracks set up. And so those are all my stems. I can print all my stems at one time. And then I'm also set up to where all my mixes are printed at the same time. So I'm printing that one track is to an audio track. Then I have five other audio tracks where I have, it's going to this one that's going to go to mastering, which demos aren't mastered, but I still print that way in case something ever happened. You need to go to mastering. And then it's also, that is also bust over with my limiting, which makes it louder for clients to hear it. Because I always, clients only hear the loud one. They don't want to hear the one that's going to master. They hear the one that's loud with lots of limiting. And it's kind of faux mastering. Call it faux mastering. Call it a heated mix. Call it if you want to call it. It's so they can kind of, they don't have to turn it up in their car. Right. Because people, believe it or not, don't know how to use their volume in their car. <laughs> <laughs> and so you have to do that for them. And then it's also, I also have it set up that I can print an instrumental mix, an acapella mix, a TV track mix, and a vocal up mix all at the same time. So in one pass, however long that song is, I can print all those mixes. Okay. And then I just export. 
saves me a lot of time. And wow. all my stems I can export in 30 seconds. Done. Because wow. that used to take, what, two to three hours to print all that stuff? And now I can do it in less than five minutes? All at one time. All at one time. Wow. That's impressive. So if someone needs something, I go, here you go. And it's everything. And it's everything. It took a lot of time to figure out how to set up a mixed template to do all that. But again, I've watched a lot of videos and got a lot of ideas from different guys and yeah. figured out how to do it for myself. That's that's really cool. And so, and also too, there's a lot of parallels. There's drum parallel. There's acoustic parallel. I mean, all different sorts of parallel compression and EQ. And all my verbs are set up in there. I mean, I'll have have like ten reverbs and delays for vocals, for just the lead vocal. But I may use one. But they're all there. Okay. You know, so it's like there's a small room. There's a hall. There's a chamber. There's a it's like a ping pong delay. There's a mm -hmm. mono delay. There's a slap. There's a spring. Anything I could possibly need, it's just there. I just turn it on. I right. don't have to go searching for it. I don't. So have you can to have ten. It. You can have ten plugins of different reverbs in this setup. Yeah. All turned off. You just turn one on that you want, and it's there. It's I may tweak it depending on the song. Sure, of course. But at least I have a starting place. Yeah. So so start to finish on one song from tracking it to it's faux mastered. Let's say. Yeah. For the the purpose of a demo, what's what's your time frame now? Five to six hours. Okay, that's fast. Yeah, that's extremely fast. Yeah. No wonder I mean, why you get so much work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe eight or nine hours if it's. I mean, because sometimes you know it it does happen occasionally. You come in and and uh, usually there's certain writers or artists that I, I work with that I, I that are more prone to this than others, and a lot of times it's stuff that I didn't track that they'll send me. Cause I, I get sent a lot of stuff too, that people writers will come to me over and over again because I can fix a track. I tracked this. It's not right. Fix it. What that means is reproduce this track. I'm not going to recut it. So you have to work with what I have and make it better. Feel like what I want it to feel like. And a lot of times that is, now, is this for just a demo It's for a demo? Yeah. So like they went somewhere else and cut it and they got it and they got it back and they're like, and they were even there when it tracked. So I'm, I don't know how this happens, but mm -hmm. it does happen. <laughs> like you were there when it happened, but, but it caught a lot of times they just, again, when you're tracking, you just don't have a lot of time to try and experiment things. And the, maybe the players on the floor just weren't getting your vision. And so now it's my job to kind of go, okay, they tracked it and it's, it's the right tempo and the right key. And it's basically the right arrangement as far as intro, verse, chorus. Most of the time, sometimes it's not. Sometimes we got to change that too. Okay. And it's like, okay, but I want it to feel. They'll be like, I want to feel more like Coldplay. Okay, well, which Coldplay? <laughs> you know, you know, and they start throwing out all these references, which pretty much mean nothing. You know what I mean? They'll throw out things that are so abstract and esoteric that my job is to figure out what do they actually mean, because. Mm -hmm that a lot of times those references will have no bearing at all on what they're talking about. Okay. Like this song is so not anywhere close to that. But what I have to discern from that is this song that they're referencing has an energy or an emotion behind it. Has a it vibe to it. That they want to somehow get out of this. Mm -hmm. And I have to figure out where those two meet. And that's an interesting problem to try to fix with basically with what you have. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one that can really play harmonic instruments. So I'm definitely limited. Like if I could play guitar or keys, I would be even working even more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, because 
I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tied with my hands behind my back going, okay, I can program drums and edit and stuff like that and create stuff out of what's there, but I'm not necessarily going to be recru- I'm not going to be replaying guitars in this track. Right. A lot of times what I'll do is, first thing I'll do is I'll just start muting things. Like I'll mute all the drums and go, okay, what is, and a lot of times I like to get the work tape. A work tape is basically just the writers sitting in a chair in a room with an iPhone with an acoustic guitar playing the song. Right. As simply as possible. A lot of times I'll reference that and go, okay, especially if that had a vibe because sometimes those vibe on those things are amazing and you're like what was that that was so amazing that made them want to demo the song Mm -hmm. and i have to get back to what that was to figure out how to translate that to this demo and sometimes that's my reference point and sometimes i'll mute everything back to just an acoustic vocal and go okay what is the thing and try to find the thing and then i'll just start adding things like okay I'll mute the drums. Okay, I like the drums in the chorus, but it needs like a little loop. Oh, the loop doesn't come into the verse, but this acoustic, I like this guitar part that's maybe in the down chorus, but that'd be great in the intro. Flat over here. Oh, wow. Okay, now they didn't put this guitar part until third chorus. That would be great on first chorus. Mm -hmm. And start flying all these different parts around. And now you're becoming an arranger. And then I'm becoming an arranger. And then I'm going, okay, now I'm getting to this emotion that they're wanting. This... I want, they want maybe something to brood a little bit more. Maybe, maybe it's too aggressive. A lot of times it's too aggressive and they want to subdue that down. And okay, how do I do that? And there's different tricks and loops and different things you can kind of, you know, a lot of times, sometimes it's just adding a ton of verb to something, you know, you know, people go verb, that's vibe, you know, you know, it's just right. wash out. It sounds cool now. It's just a bunch of verb, but right. you know, uh, whatever that is but and it's finding that little thing that gets them excited about the song again do you find that labels want fully produced demos turned in as opposed to just a piano vocal or a guitar vocal because what you're doing is very involved yeah just just for a demo yeah that's just that's to take a song that someone has written create a demonstration for them to pitch to either a publisher or to a label yeah. for hopefully that an artist will right. s- someday cut and put on an album. Yeah. You know, and I know people that say, yeah, it needs to be fully produced. I know people that say, just do a guitar vocal or a piano vocal, and that's all that you really need, it, just yeah. so they can hear the melody of the song and the lyrics. You know, but being in the position that you're in, where do you fall in that category? Yes. Yes. Either, either and or both? Yes. Yeah. I, and I, I, how do you I mean, make that decision? I constantly hear all those arguments you yeah. just said. And like, so Mark, it, it, Mark Irwin, yeah. we were talking about him earlier. You know, Mark yeah. and I know Mark and Mark has been on the podcast yeah. and, um, and we were talking about this, you know, it's like he was even saying now when it's more pop, you know, where the tracks are involved and part of the production and that kind of helps set the stage of what the song is about, then yes, you need to be more fully produced. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times in the country world, you know, they really just want to be able to present the lyric and the melody. And if you can do a good, clean guitar vocal or piano vocal, that's all you really need to sell the song. Yeah. You know, so, and I know that you've worked with Mark. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, you know, so you say yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, but you're doing all this work where it's so involved. Yeah. So how do you make that determination working with a writer to say, here's what it needs. This is what you're really wanting. You're telling me I need... You want all this, but here's what it really needs. Like, well, luckily f- for me, that question is really not up to me. I kind of do what they tell me to do okay. as far as that goes. Like if Mark or someone say, I just want this stripped down. Okay, great. We'll do it stripped down. Okay. Someone else is usually kind of making that decision before it comes to me. Okay. You're just going off of what they say. 
Right. So which one works? I, I hear from writers and publishers and everybody that depends on the song and depends on who's listening to it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a producer like Scott Hendricks who wants to hear the finished project because he's probably just going to copy the demo. And then you go to a producer like Jay Joyce who doesn't want to hear a demo at all. He just wants to hear work tape and he's not going to listen to anything. Really? He's going to do his own thing. Okay. Doesn't want to hear anything. Because because that can color what his idea for the song might be if he hears right. something beforehand. Yeah, and the good thing about Jay is if you listen to his productions, his productions sound like him. Where Scott's don't necessarily sound like him, but he's also going to copy the demo. And Scott's not the only producer that does that. I've talked to some fantastic producers that will copy the demo verbatim. And the reason that they do that is because if the artist and the manager and the label all love the demo, why not? Why would you change it? Right. Because you're going to change it, and they're going to be like, but it's not the demo. Right. It's called demoitis. People get it all the time. Okay. And to fight that uphill battle, you'll be recutting and recutting and recutting, and you're going to wind up back at the demo anyway. So at that point, why not just use the demo? It's a good question. Why not? Maybe recut the vocal, but, but keep the tracks. A lot of times... There could be so many reasons why yeah, not yeah. to. I don't know. I'm just it's it. like I'm just throwing it out there as yeah. A, I mean, you know, it's like kind of thing, but. yeah. It's sometimes producers want to show their worth by recutting it. Sure. Um, sometimes there's something. It's maybe the tracks in the wrong key. Maybe they can't get a hold of the tracks. Um, they're going to have to pay to have the tracks anyway, so it's going to cost them the same amount of money. So they might as well just recut it. Yeah. Uh, and those are all valid points. Yeah. And it's so there's so many different reasons why not to yeah. just, why recut it, why not just use original? Because a lot of times they, they may redo the, copy the demo, but there may be subtle changes enough that's like, yeah, why not just recut it? Yeah. I'm producing a record now, then I'm doing the same thing. It's like, and I did the demos. I did a lot of the demos and I'm having to copy my own demos. Okay. I did the demos and now I'm producing the record and recording and mixing the record. Okay. And I'm having to copy myself. But why? I just that that's just interesting to me. If you if you did it yourself and then you're yeah. pro, now you're producing your own demos. Yeah. Like are, is it the key having to change? Like no, what is it that nothing's has to, changed? So what makes you have to recut your own stuff from the demo if it's they gonna end up being just like the demo? They didn't want to have to pay to upgrade it. It becomes a I'm rolling my eyes back and forth trying it, to figure my it mind's becomes, going. It becomes a financial decision to them. I don't understand why that's a big financial decision, but for them, for whatever the scenario is, it is. That is it's interesting. cheaper for them to just recut it. Really? Apparently. That's okay. what they can come up with. But I'm like, I have beat my head up against the wall of just recreating what was there. Interesting. And exactly. Verbatim. Like taking four bars at a time on guitar parts and redoing, taking two hours to redo all the guitar parts verbatim. Wow. Makes you just want to put your head through a wall. <laughs> but there are people uh, listening that want to do this. Yes. They're like, okay, th- this is really good stuff for them to know. Yeah. And believe me, I would rather do that than dig a ditch. Exactly. Any day of the time, because I'm sitting there with a buddy of mine recreating guitar parts in a studio at Blackbird. Who What's cares? not fun about that? Who cares? Right. You know. Yeah. Figure out the details, but all, you all get to do it. Yeah. All I'd say is like production is not always creative. Oh, of course. You know what I mean? So, so, so I mean, uh, a buddy of mine who's one of the best producers that I really respect, he said production is managing expectations. Mm. I'm like, I still think about that one a lot. That's good. It's so true. It's, and he is so good at that. So good at managing expectations with managers, artists, and labels. 
Yeah. And figuring that out. And That's I'm good. like, that is communicate. And he was a communication major in college. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, he does that so well. So, so, so yeah. well. I always tell people, you know, there's a creative side yeah. of what we do, but this is a business. It is. You know, and so you, even if you're a creative person, if you're the songwriter or you're the artist, you need to have business sense. Absolutely. You need to know how to work the business side of things. You may not know all of it. Nobody's, right. Nobody knows all of it. Yeah. You know, but you need to either, you need to know some of it and you need to have people around you that know other parts that you don't. Yeah. To help navigate those things. Yeah. To do it well, you know, yeah. so it's, it's not just one or the other, especially if you're on the creative side, you still, people can be just business in the music industry. Yeah because they don't have creative side to them and they don't want it, but they want to be involved in music. And so, you know, that's one thing, but if you're a creative person and you're wanting to be an, a writer or, um, or an artist or singer or whatever, you still need to have that business aspect to what you're doing because for the majority of people, you know, most people aren't, they're listening, aren't going to be on a label. Right. You know, and they may yeah. never get on a label and may not want to get on a label, but right. they want to do music for a living. Right. You know, so especially as an indie artist yeah, or as an indie songwriter, whatever, you've got to be able to manage those business parts yes. of, of everything. So, yeah. And if you can't, then try to get a team around you that can. Exactly. You know, know your strengths and weaknesses. I, I, for, for me, I, I've learned years ago to to be able to admit my strengths and faults and exploit, don't try to fix my weaknesses, but exploit my strengths. Right. And that's, that's worked pretty well for me. Yeah. I, I know what I can't do and yeah. I don't try to do that. Sure. Like mastering. I don't want to master. Yeah. To, you know, but you know, people that, that are great at I it. I know great so, I have friends that are great mastering engineers. Yep. If I need something mastering, I go to them. I don't want to do it. Sure. Dude, this has been incredible. Lots and lots of great information, and I am grateful for you sharing it. So let's, as we close out, um, if you can give some some advice, yeah, some practical advice, people wanting to get into, whether it be someone wants to be a session drummer, or somebody that wants to get into editing, yeah, or maybe becoming a mix engineer or producer. You've done, you know, all these things and done do them really, really well. Um, but what's some advice you would give somebody wanting to get in or that is trying to get into this? You know, it's like, how do you make those connections and what are some of the first steps you would share for that? Um, the first thing I would say is, uh, go to where they're making music that you want to be a part of. Okay. If you're living somewhere that there's not music being made, there's not going to be music being made. And for me, I chose to come to Nashville because I didn't want to go to New York or LA. Mm -hmm. And because I want to do studio stuff. And in Nashville, I've learned the studio and the live worlds do not commingle. You're in one or the other. You mean like touring, touring musicians? If you're a touring musician, you are probably not a full-time session musician. Right. Do you play sessions sometimes? Sure. Are you going to be called for the big sessions? No. Why? Because you're not available. You're out of town. This is a small town. Everybody talks. And if you're on the road, everybody knows you're on the road. And they're not going to call you because they know you're on the road. It doesn't matter how good you are. It's availability. So I would say if your goal is to be on the road, great. Go be on the road. But I know so many guys that have gone out on the road and they want to transition to playing in town in sessions and stuff. And they have family and they have kids and they have wives and they can't make the transition because that 
a year, two years, it's going to take them from, they're going to lose money for two years and they can't afford to do it. Mm. They get broken and they got to take another road gig and you're not going to be able to transition that unless you're around it in town. So I, I always say, you know, if you don't want to play live, don't start. But it's a paradox because the paradox is when you first start out, you have to take any gig that comes along. Right. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> and so, and a lot of times that's going to be a road gig. It's yep. a lot easier for a road gig to come up. And the other thing that I would say is for me, it's kind of like what you're talking about earlier. It's like I didn't really start working until I realized this is a business first. And still, I really started having the mindset of I am in the service industry of giving my clients whatever they want and realizing whatever they want is not about me and leaving my ego and emotion about what I think they need to do at the door. I may have my opinion about what it is, which is fine. And I've had to learn uh, with experience of expressing that opinion and not when to do so and when when to give it and when not to. Some people ask for it and they don't want, want it. And some people ask for it and they do want it. And I've made that mistake on both sides. And I think the only way to learn that is through making a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I've also learned when people want to tweak a mix or tweak a drum part, that's okay. You know, it's, it's not my song. And if they want to change something, that's okay. Because in the, the day it's a business. I'm on here to make sure that they're happy and having a good experience and just trusting and leaving those results. Those results aren't up to me. Like if they like it or don't like it, I can only do my best job and treat this as a business and have integrity and be fair to everybody that's involved and have a good attitude about it all the time. It's mm -hmm. all I can control about it. Yeah. All that other stuff is just out of my hands. And just, it's one of those businesses that has been extremely frustrating at times and extremely gratifying at times. Another friend of mine always says, if there's anything else you can do in life and find enjoyment in it, do that. <laughs> You're not the first person I've had on the show that has given that a quote of that nature. Yeah, it um, is. Um, you know, the door will be slammed in your face metaphorically, hopefully not literally, more times than you can count. Yeah. And in my experience, the successes come out of not where you think they would come from. You know, like all the things that I look back and like those are the big monumental moments have come out of things. It's like I didn't see that. I was working towards this direction and so something came out of the other thing going, I did not see that happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's always kind of blown my mind. I don't know why it's worked that way, but it has. And, uh, and just really being willing to do whatever is necessary. It's especially starting out, the amount of things, and I just loved it so much I would do anything. Work till two o'clock in the morning in the studio for no money. Why? Because I'm in the studio. Why wouldn't I want to be in exactly. the studio? It's amazing. Yeah. What else am I going to be doing? It's the best place to be. What, what, what else am I going to be doing? Yeah. You know, and, and luckily for me, I didn't get married and have kids until I was in my 30s. So I had, you know, um, I, I definitely think that changes how you're able to put time and energy into this. Mm -hmm. I definitely tell young people that I sit down and have coffee with constantly that, you know, like they want to get into session work or studio work or whatever. And like they have a young wife and they're 21 and they're starting to have kids. I'm like, it's hard. You have a different challenge than I had. Okay. I don't see how it's not going to change things. Right. So you what know? do you tell them? Um, because they need to know that somebody's listening that, if I, that, and, well, that is and, young and married. In my experience, 
those relationships are much more important than my job. Yep. And so I, I'm going to make decisions based upon that. Mm-hmm. In my 20s, when I was single and didn't have kids, it didn't matter if I stayed out till 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm not going to stay out till the 2 o'clock in the morning when I have wife and kids at home now. Right. I'm just not going to do that. And I don't want to do that. Right. You know, I'm 45 years old. I don't want to... I don't want to see two. I really don't want to see two o'clock in the morning anymore. Yeah. I have no desire to see that, and a lot of that is just age and whatever else. Maturity, you want to call it. And, yeah, yeah. It's a nice way of saying it. Maturity, yeah. So uh, th- to me, that that's how it changes. It's just like it just depends on how you're, and it and it depends on your wife and your kids and how what they need out of that relationship. Do they need you to be there every night? Do they not need you to be there every night? Uh, it's you know, marriage and family is so complicated, and it's. Everybody brings so much baggage into it, and yet it's also so important. Whatever that looks like for you, in my experience, it's still really important. Yeah. Well, and I always talk about success in this industry is not about being famous. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's so about true. being able to support your family if you yeah. have one, yeah. if you're married and have kids or just married, either way. Yeah. For me, being successful is being able to support my family, making a living in music. Yeah. You know, now if I'm not in music, my goal is to be able to support my family no matter what I'm doing. Yeah. But since the the purpose of this is for people that are wanting to make a living in the music industry, how do I do that and support a family? Right. Yeah. That, that's success. So success is different for different people, but ultimately I think that's the goal. Yeah. Is if you can make a living and you can pay your bills and support a family and you don't have to be famous, you know, very few people are going to be, I mean, we, it seems like there are tons of people that are famous, but in this, in the scheme of things, yeah, the big scheme of things, you know, it's a very small amount of people that are actually quote unquote famous that yeah. people around the world know. There's a for, lot more people working in the music business that are not Nobody famous. knows. A hundred times more than are famous, yeah. But are making a living at but it. But are making a living at it, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. That, that's, that's the encouragement of this show yeah is to let people know that you can do that yeah you know? absolutely and and i think too it's like just being willing like i was talking about being willing to do whatever work you need to do whether you know whatever you need to record or mix or whatever whatever you need to do to get to that goal or and, and just be willing to do it because you never know what that's going to lead to mm-hmm. saying yes to this artist it's like i never thought that would lead to this you just never know mm-hmm. And opening yourself up to those opportunities and just trusting the process that it's all going to... And, you know, I I've, I believe that work begets work. I think you just need to keep working. And that little work will kind of like a, like a centrifugal force. It just keeps the snowball, just keeps rolling if you keep working. Yeah. You know, whatever th- that is, keep something going. Even if it's, you know, you hate to say for free, but, you know, if you got to do something to keep keep that ball rolling, whatever that is, it'll my experience eventually open up a door mm-hmm. one way or the other and just try. Sometimes I've just had to try different things and realize that that door shut on that and it didn't work. Okay. I learned that that didn't work. So try something else, right. you know, cause I, I think production in life is just a series of decisions, make a decision. And then if, well, what if you, you want to change your mind? Great. Make another decision. Yeah. But at least I made a decision. Sure. You know, I definitely approach production that way. It's like, yeah. let's make a decision. What are we going to do? Great, we're going to do this. Okay, well, I don't like that anymore. Great, make another decision. Right. It's not done until it's done. Sure. That's good. Hopefully that answers yeah, man. the question. It's, uh, it, is, it, it, is, it is a winding road, and it's up and down, and it's, 
there's many days I go, is there anything else I can do to be happy? Because some days, even though I love my job, there's aspects that are so frustrating and so demoralizing that you just want to quit. Hmm. Like if I get to sit in this room and mix and record all day long, that'd be great. But unfortunately, there's so many other aspects of the music industry that I have to do that are so frustrating. Collecting money, invoicing, mm -hmm. people calling and saying they need this. I'm like, what do you mean you need that? I gave you that to you like four weeks ago. What do you, you know? And just accepting the fact that when I send files out, I send them out a certain way because I know that's how people want them. And it causes me less work on the back end. Right. Like I always send mixes out as I attach it in an email as an MP3. Is it the best way possible? No, but I do that because that's how most people want to listen to it. If I try to send a link that's a wave file that sounds better, they're going to be like, hey, can you just send me it in an email as an MP3? I guarantee that's what they're going to say. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So it's like, just again, give the client what, what they want. It's yeah. not necessarily how I would want it, but it's how they want it. Yeah. And that's different for people in TV and sync, TV film, sync be. world. Because on that end when it's music supervisors or licensing agents, they want it to be a downloadable link. They yeah, don't yeah. want MP3s yeah. sent in an email. That That's like a no-no in that world. Yeah. But in but, but that's, but what you're but that, doing. But that's after it, but that's when it's turned in. I'm just talking to the artist or whoever for approval. Right, exactly. But I was saying, so it's so just that's, that's different two different things. Yeah, but yeah. it's just, just to say that, you know, people want things done differently. Everybody yes. wants something done differently. And yes. you have to know how to work around everybody's expectations. Yes. You know. So. Because I, I don't like, it really frustrates me when I've done something and people come back to me and they say they want something different yeah, like that because it wastes my time Yeah, and I'm busy and I don't want my time to be wasted. So I do it the least, like I used to use a, a service to send files back and forth that would expire after two weeks. Mm -hmm. I don't do that anymore Yeah, because people won't download it for two months. Right. I'm like, I don't understand that. As soon as someone sends me a link, I download it within five minutes. Right. And I save it to my drive and I move it to where it needs to go and I have it. But a lot of people don't do that. Yeah. And so I've had to learn. I send them a Dropbox link and I code it and I color it and I label it exactly nice and neat and plain and simple. This song, what it is, download. It's blue link, ready to go, never expires. And they can trade it and also don't send shared folders because people will send me shared forward me a shared folder that I'm not a on. It's like, I can't, I don't have access to that. Right. So now I got to go back to that person and get, just send me a link. I can email back and forth. Yeah. I can send kind of what you're talking about. I yeah. don't, I just need a link I can download Yeah. and I don't need it to expire and I don't need it to be limited to who I can send it to. Sure. And that causes me less headache and it works easier for me. Yeah. It's been my experience. Like I want as simple and as little headache as possible because I don't getting a call back about that. Just then I have to stop what I'm doing mm -hmm. and send that out and deal with that. And I don't want to have to deal with that. Yeah. Dude, you're awesome. Well, thanks. Appreciate Th it. Thank you for taking time to, to sit and talk and share all of this information with us and yeah. the audience. And I know somebody's going to take, multiple nuggets of what we've talked about today and, and incorporate it into their careers. And I sure hope that they do because I, I need to take some of this myself and incorporate some, th yeah, <laughs> some yeah. things that probably be helpful even for me. So, but thank you for your time. Thank you for your friendship and Absolutely. for letting me come hang out with you here. And, and, um, 
I know you're going to continue to do incredible things and many more albums that we'll get to listen to and enjoy. And where can people check out your stuff? Your you got a website for information if people want to check out oh, who you gosh. are. Or, no, I'm so horrible that I don't have any. I hardly have anything. You don't have anything. I've. Yeah, so I if somebody wants to hire you to produce yeah. <laughs> or, or do a demo, can they do that? Oh, yeah. I always say, if you want to find me, everybody can find me because uh, Nashville is a small town. But, uh, you know, I I do have an Instagram. It's Benjamin C. Phillips Okay. that I'll post stuff to every once in a while. I have a Facebook that it's uh, BCP, that um, BCP74, that uh, uh, and that's about it. And okay. I don't really check those. Very often. Very often, a little bit. I know yeah. you've contacted me on Facebook. You probably see slow replies. I'm just not. I don't. I don't even have Facebook on my phone anymore. I deleted it from my phone years ago. Yeah. I, I don't want it on there. Um, I just had to put Instagram on there to post stuff, and um, and it's yeah. I do that strictly for business stuff, but uh, I'm really bad about that. <laughs> well, people can Google you and they can find you if uh, yeah. If somebody wants to find you bad enough. They can find me. I mean, just send me a Facebook message or an Instagram message is probably the quickest quickest way, and then we can exchange contact information. Cool. Well, we'll put there. that all the information in the show notes Great, yeah. so people can can check you out if they want to. So. Absolutely, awesome, dude. It's, it's good to see you. Thank you for your time, and hope you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, appreciate it. Thanks, Marty. Thank you guys so much for joining us again today for our conversation with Ben Phillips. I really hope you were able to take all of the things we talked about and that you can apply them to your life and into your career as well. Remember, Edenbrook Productions is here to help if you need consultation services via phone call, Skype, or FaceTime. Be sure to let us know how we can help you begin to make a living in the music industry.